far too often, I lose my AirPods. If you're unfamiliar with what AirPods are, they're little ear things that go in your ear that help connect to your phone so you can put one in when you're driving or when you want to listen to a podcast or something, still be hands-free. But the problem is they're too small. And too often I'll put one in my ear or put both in my ear and then I'll lose the case only for it to turn up years, decades later at times. Perhaps you have items that you regularly lose. Perhaps you have things in your home that right now you, as I say this, you are thinking to yourself, yeah, I really wonder where that went to. I searched everywhere. I saw some of you nodding that this is the case. Yet for all the times that I have lost my AirPods, whether in the pocket of pants or, uh, that I threw in the laundry and hopefully salvaged before washing them or left fall between my car seat and the console, wherever they may be, for all the times I have lost them, for all the time that I have spent searching for them, I have never wanted to buy an ionic ear. You might wonder what an ionic ear is. If you're a watcher of the TV show Shark Tank, it's one of the very first items that was pitched on Shark Tank. If you're familiar with Shark Tank, entrepreneurs, uh, 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 inventors, they make pitches to types of industry who come in and back projects and put their, their wealth and their expertise behind it to try to get it mass-produced and sold to millions. Well, the ionic ear was an uh, a, a earpiece that you can have surgically implanted into the side of your head, and all you have to do to charge it each night is to pu- push a little needle into the side of your head to help charge it. When the ionic ear was pitched before the sharks in Shark Tank, surprisingly, they said, no, nah, there's not going to be a mark for that. The titans of industry, they know what is needed. They know markets, they know needs. They hopefully know what uh, uh, production costs would be, market viability, the conditions they know need to be just right. How often do we evaluate conditions and circumstances for business endeavors or for life? Like, hey, things are looking good today or things are not. How often are the conditions of your day off to a great start? Maybe you've slept well the night before, even gotten an extra hour of sleep, and you woke up and the sun was shining and it was a beautiful early summer day, not a mid-fall day in November. I don't know, I'm just spitballing here. As opposed to this, there's waking up and being tired and not sleeping well and you weren't able to get the coffee that morning. You open your email and you've already got 19 things waiting on you in the office and you can tell it's going to be one of those days. In life, we desire conditions to be right, circumstances to be favorable. Yet thankfully, God is faithful even when circumstances seem unbelievable. Let me say that again. God is faithful. Even circumstances seem unbelievable. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife and daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord 
and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Joy and Gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience uh, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This morning we're going to see three ways that God is faithful to work in unbelievable circumstances. Three ways that God is faithful to work in unbelievable circumstances. The first way, God is faithful to preserve his people as they wait. God is faithful to preserve His people as they wait. As we enter into, remember verses 1 through 4 of Luke, are, 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 of Luke 1 are, serve as like a prologue to the book. In verses 5 to 25, we enter into the world of Jesus. What we find is two figures that we are introduced to right off the bat. The elderly priest and his wife, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Oh, long look at how they are described in verses 5-7. They were both, in verse 6, they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments, statutes of the Lord. But then verse 7 gives this twist on their story. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. We actually see in this a good understanding, or excuse me, a good clue for understanding what was going on in this day, and how to see God's work as throughout the book of Luke, and even in our day as well. Sometimes we can confuse the important with the significant. There are things that are important today, but are eternally insignificant. We see this in verse 5. Situating in the context of time and real history and real events, Luke records, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, this is the time in which Herod, uh, uh, over Rome, uh, sent by Rome to rule over Judea, where many uh, Israelites dwelt, he is ruling and yet, in the importance that Herod and all the events surrounding him and surrounding the Roman Empire held, there is something more significant going on, perhaps off the beaten path, and perhaps that many people would not see or notice. And that is that there is a priest, his wife, whom God is going to use to do something far significant than anything that would occur 
under the rule of Herod. This is something we'll see repeatedly in Luke. A lot is going on. You'll see people come and go who have great pomp and grandeur. They seem impressive by all outside appearances. Yet all the meanwhile, while the spotlights of the world are on all of these off to the side, God is over here working in the humble and amongst those who would seemingly be unlikely vessels of God's redeeming work. So Zechariah is serving as a priest. Luke records very politely the circumstances of Zechariah and Elizabeth as relates to the age. They were both, as Luke says, advanced in years. Zechariah is probably playing out the clock, waiting to reach retirement, waiting for that age when Social Security will kick in, and he's going to the temple to burn incense. We see this, and, and there's a few things that we should note. Zechariah was one priest of many. You see, his division was on duty in verse 8. And so what would happen was that, that um, lots would cast, kind of dice rolled or coin slipped. Think of it like, like just by random choice, random selection, although we know with God there is no such thing as random choice or selection. But uh, according to verse 9, according to the priesthood, he was chosen by lot, enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Of all the priests serving in his division, serving a temple, Zechariah is going to have the highlight day of his priesthood. He will be the one that will go into the temple. And what he would do is symbolically burn incense to symbolically picture the sm- as the smoke goes up, the prayers of the people of God going up before God. I don't know if Zechariah knew that this would happen when he went to work that day, or he only found out once he arrived on duty. Yet, the multitude of people are praying outside the temple. And Zechariah is the one who has been chosen to go in. And so as we enter the world of Jesus, we find the people of God thinking of this people outside the temple praying. Look at that. Verse 10, the whole people, the whole multitude of the people praying outside at the hour of incense. People of God were likely small in number. They're still, and yet they still gathered at the temple and prayed. If you're familiar with your Old Testament and your New Testament, you kind of wonder how they come together. There's about a 400-year gap between the last event recorded in the Old Testament and the events surrounding the days of the birth of Jesus in the New Testament. 400 years, last I checked, is a long time. If we were to do comparison's sake, to get our frame of reference, 400 years ago in 1620, well, 422, don't want to be exact, but 1620, that was when the Mayflower first departed England. With 132 people on board. And after sailing for 10 arduous weeks across the North Atlantic, the Mayflower reached the tip of Cape Cod. A lot of time that passed between the end of the Old Testament and the days recorded by Malachi the prophet and the beginning of the New Testament and the coming of Jesus. And yet, in the midst of all of this, 400 years, imagine the people just praying, 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 praying that their God faithful past, would remain faithful and work on behalf of his people. I hope that this simple setting, right at the outset of the Gospel of Luke, a small number, a remnant of people praying, an elderly priest and his barren wife serving the Lord in righteousness and blamelessness, I hope that this would be an encouragement to us, dear church family. The story of Jesus' work begins with a small number of people praying. Trusting God even when the engine of the Roman Empire is humming at full speed and at maximum capacity all around them. 
And yet, right at the beginning of Luke, the thing that we must see, though, is that God sees and knows His people as they wait on Him. Do not be dismayed. The church faithfully trusting God, even waiting on Him, that church is the epicenter of God's glory, her community, and her world. And situate, we do not lack for natural beauty and the glory of God revealed. See it in the leaves changing colors this time of year. We see it when we go down to the beach. We see it when we go to the lighthouse. We see it when we uh, see beautiful sunrises over the water. And as if we are not spoiled enough, we have not one, not two, not three, but four beautiful cliffs. Look out upon the beautiful Atlantic Ocean. From. And yet, brothers and sisters, for all the natural beauty that we see day by day by day in create, that creation reveals about her Creator, God's Word would have us to know the epicenter, the heartbeat of God's glory most vividly revealed in our community would be in a small number of people prayerfully waiting upon the Lord. Week by week rejoicing in the Gospel. Week by week trusting in the Savior who has come. Week by week encouraging each other with the truth that He will come again. This is what we do when we gather week by week. If you wonder, what, what is the church about? Why does she gather every Sunday to worship, to sing songs, to pray, to sit under the preaching of God's Word. We do three things. We remember God's faithfulness by seeing His work in His Word. We rejoice in His work in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, that through Jesus, His death for our sins, and, and, and through the power of the Gospel, the good news, Jesus' atonement for us, we can have relationship with God. We rejoice in the fact we who were once aliens, strangers from God, have been made sons and daughters by the power of the Gospel. So we remember, we rejoice, and we remind one another that He will return again. This is what we do week by week. May we take heart that God sees that small remnant of people rejoicing, remembering, reminding God is faithful. And we have even more than what they had. We have the wonder of the God of Jesus Christ foretold and all that we anticipate in His return. So God has failed to preserve His people as they wait. And so let us be careful to pray as we wait. In fact, see in verse 10 and 11, the people outside praying to God and see how God works in responding to His people. Verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Zechariah has gone in to burn uh, that incense for the Lord. And then verse 11, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So first we saw God is faithful in the, in the unbelievable circumstances of His people waiting. Second, we see God is faithful to work through the hard circumstances of our hearts. God is faithful in the unbelievable circumstances of our waiting, and now in the hard circumstances of our own hearts. Zechariah enters the temple, he begins to burn incense when all of a sudden this angel appears before him. And I think verse 12 is probably quite the understatement. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell before him. I would be troubled too. But verse 13, Zechariah standing troubled before the angel. Verse 13 featured the angel speaking further to Zechariah and says to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. 
and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, this is fascinating. Zechariah and Elizabeth were, were up there in years. To use Luke's language, they were advanced in years. Sure, they had probably prayed children years and years and years and years ago, but it stands to reason that they had probably stopped praying that at some point when they thought, hey, science and nature and biology is no longer on our side. Brothers and sisters, God works through the long-stopped, even long-forgotten prayers of His people. Let me ask you, where do you harbor hurt or maybe just a sense of cynicism towards God because of past prayers that went unanswered, circumstance that went unresolved? What are you waiting on today? Have you been praying for the conversion of a non-Christian that is near and dear to you for many years and you've seen no fruit? Have you been praying or battling illness or sickness for many years? Have battled doubt, discouragement, even mental illness for many years and found little to no relief? And you wonder, does God hear my prayers? We don't know all the details, but we know God heard the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And there's a word for us to know that God hears and delights in answering long forgot prayers of his people. But if we're going to ask this, we must understand, or if we're going to consider the way in which God answers our prayers, we must understand that many times the great answers to, uh, to our prayers is not to give us what we want, but what God has designed and ordained to give us for our ultimate good and for His glory. So, whenever we see this, sometimes we think that God is, is we would never say it like this, but we can expect, we, we, can, we can have an attitude or mindset that more wants God to be our cosmic butler. I face need, God, I need you to come address this need and do it in a timely manner. But God is less our butler and he is more our, a, 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 a worker for our ultimate sanctification and growth. Think less butler, more a spiritual personal trainer. I don't know about you, I've never had a personal trainer, but I think if I did have a personal trainer, he or she and I would oftentimes disagree over what workouts was needed for me. Over what changes needed to be made to my diet or my lifestyle. Let me tell you, I would probably be the one who wanted a softer road. Be the personal trainer who knows, no, I know what's best for you and just the steps that need to be taken. The greatest answer that God gives to us is that He gives us Himself. He sustains us with hearts grounded in through His Word over the course of years and years, even over the course of decades. Sometimes, whether it's unfulfilled dreams or unfulfilled prayers, God gives us a limp that we must walk with in order that we may lean on Him. Because He knows that if He were to give us the ability to run full speed, we would run past Him and away from Him. I'm not an expert chef, but I know that you cannot cook great filet mignon in the microwave. And yet, how often... Do we want fantastic meals prepared by God with the quickness of throwing them in the microwave? We want a five-course, bountiful feast prepared for us in an instant. The sweetest feasts of communion with God are not found in Him uh, instantaneously answering your prayers, but in slowly allowing you to taste and see that He is good, even as prayerfully learn to trust Him for years and years and even decades.
There are prayers that I have for our church. I was praying even long before we began this replant back in 2019 that have still gone answered. And what God has shown and what God has revealed is that the greatest thing I have needed that our church has needed in our prayers is not what I would say I need, but Him. As the people strive to serve God but find themselves in relative disarray and insignificant and voiceless under the thumb of the Roman Empire, give an announcement that a baby will be born who will do these things. Look at what the angel says to Zechariah. You will have joy, gladness. Many will rejoice at His birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. He'll, and look at verse 16. He'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to children, the disobedient of the, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It says he will bring joy for his people but a joy that is found not in God transforming the circumstances, but transforming them. Do you catch that? God says that He's going to transform hearts and, 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 and the soul of the people of Israel through John who would come. He's not going to transform their circumstances being under the rule of the Roman authorities. You know, sometimes our prayer is a little different than our attitude towards like our doctor's. Whenever we pray, we say, okay, here's the circumstances I'm dealing with. Like here, or, or, or whenever we have attitude towards what we want God to do, here's the circumstances I'm dealing with outside of me, and so I need you to come and fix us. But whenever I go to the doctor, let's say I have something going on, and I think it's flu, I think it's strep throat, something, whatever. I go to the doctor, and the doctor says, okay, here's what's going on inside of you. Let's get this medicine prescribed. Let's get this treatment. Let's, make, let's do these things in order to do the work that is needed inside of you. God is more the spiritual doctor than the one who's going to change our outside circumstances. We can pray that he would change our outside circumstances. Don't get me wrong. We need to understand that God's work in us, as we see here with Israel, his work in them is this work of transforming their hearts that their eyes and their affections and their desires and their trust may be more grounded in the Lord whom they pray to and not in the external transformation of their circumstances. Sometimes that's hard to hear, is it not? I feel like I just told you, you know, Christmas is coming and get ready for t-shirts and sweaters and socks. You don't invite the opening of those gifts. And yet, what we see is that God in this work in transforming us this work is in accord with a greater purpose. Remember, in 400 years since the events of the Old Testament concluded, but then God revealed to Zechariah and Elizabeth that one who would come in the power of Elijah, as verse, 16, verse uh, 17 says. In this, we see the redemptive mercy of God that this baby will prepare the way for His people to see Him. The ultimate prophet Elijah's ministry was one marked by discouragement. Frustration, hardship, as he faithfully served the Lord, and yet small numbers of, of people gave credence to what he was saying. He would preach, and they'd go back about their business. No heart change, no life change, no deeper trust in the Lord. Just, okay, good thing, Elijah, and we're going to go back about things. It's a ministry of discouragement. 
But God promised He'll bring fruit from this ministry of the prophet like Elijah. This one John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, would be one who'd have a ministry greater than Elijah. Can I tell you something? Sometimes I wonder to myself, Steve, who do you think you are? Some of you probably wonder that too. Who do you think you are? Here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean. Sometimes I think about the work I have as a husband, a father, pastor, leading our church alongside of our elders. And I'm struck by the planning, the coordinating, the organizing, the administrating, all the things that go in to make the engine run. And I'm struck by all the responsibilities that not only lie before me, but lie before us, lie before us as a church family. There are times where I try to make it a regular pattern to spend time with people who are not Christians, to try to share the hope of the gospel with them. And yet, so often I realize, and this is where I'm getting the point of who do you think you are, I try to do so many things, and yet prayer is such a small part of that equation far too often. To use illustration from Old Testament, I try to gather the wood, 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 and yet so rarely do I pray and ask God to send the fire. Something tells me I'm probably not alone in that, in this room. Who do I think I am? Who do we think we are? That we can do this great work holding up before a lost and unbelieving world a spectacular, beautiful Savior who offers them life, but offers them life through death itself. And who do we think we are to not believe that we must desperately rely upon God to do that work? As we've begun to resume our Sunday evening services, I want to encourage you, if you're able to do so, get yourself to planning to attend these. We do a number of things at these, but one most pivotal thing that perhaps we do is pray. We pray for God to us in lives to send fire. To send fire as we prepare sermons. To send fire as we work on sermon study guides and have growth groups and host events and do fellowships and to send that fire by which He would build His church. Some of you are fruit. Examples of God sending that fire. Let us pray for more. Do you see here what we're getting at? The first challenge, the unbelievable circumstance is the problem of time. The next unbelievable circumstance is the problem of hearts. And now, as we continue on, God is faithful third in hard circumstances to work the miraculous. Zechariah responds to this promise that his wife will have a baby by asking hard questions. That's good. Let's bring this back to reality, okay? I hope I don't offend anybody by saying this. Old women don't normally have babies. Zechariah is thinking this in his mind. God, I've got some, or Angel Gabriel, I've got some questions for you that relate to biology. He says it in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? 
I know you're sent from heaven, but upon your earth, gobbles here, I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. He's so polite about his wife. I'm old. She's advanced in years. The angel answers him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I am sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Basically stated, Gabriel has been sent by God, and God is going to do this, which is a miracle. See, what we see throughout the Bible is that the same God who spoke creation into existence and is sovereign over science, sovereign over biology, chemistry, physics, astronomy, all other sciences that I can't recall, sovereign over every species of animal, every microbe or molecule, under sovereign rule as the one who ordained and works and orchestrates all things, He is showing us, He reserves and practices the right as the one who spoke all things into existence to speak miracles into that existence. This is what we see here. But what we find as we read this conversation between Zechariah and Gabriel that another miracle is needed as well. Look at verse 20. Gabriel tells Zechariah, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, Gabriel, striking Zechariah mute here, is if, if advanced in years Elizabeth was not being told she was going to be pregnant, this would be the biggest, strangest question-producing thing about this account. As Old Testament God that did things and worked out, thing, worked out discipline on his people in manners that might seem a little questionable to some of us, did that God kind of break through the boundary lines and somehow sneak into the earliest pages of the New Testament here? You're, you're, it seems like a personally, an incredibly reasonable question from Zechariah. And this is how you respond, Gabriel? Well, here's what we need to grasp. Zechariah does not believe God. This is not petty or vindictive. This is an instance where this is, this is God revealing the unbelief of Zechariah. And perhaps revealing the unbelief of Israel at his time, and perhaps even causing us to question the unbelief of our own hearts. How many of us pray but do not believe? How many of us pray, believe incorrectly, don't understand the purpose of prayer? Remember, the purpose of prayer is for God to transform us to trust Him more. Here's what's happening with Zechariah. He would soon leave the temple and be expected to announce a blessing on the people of Israel after leaving the temple. But a priest who could not believe that God would miraculously intervene in the events of the world for the sake of his people, this was a priest who was not suited to pronounce the blessing of God upon the people whom he serves as a mediator between. Without the hope of God's redeeming power, any blessing that Zechariah pronounced would be nothing more than a professional formality, more suitable and not for a priest who proclaimed the people of God that God is still in the miracle-working business. He has not forgotten us. It's far better for Zechariah to be struck silent to offer an unleaving blessing to the people of God. And we must carefully reflect and look inward. We don't need to ask ourselves whether or not we believe God can give a child to an aging, childless couple. That is not the question. The question is whether or not we believe God can work in unbelievable circumstances for the sake of our hope in Him and for the sake of His power to build His church the foundation of the gospel. The gospel itself is rooted in the unbelievable. Next week, Gabriel, on his tour through uh, Israel 2,000 years ago, will visit the Virgin Mary. The announcement of an unexpected pregnancy. 
We'll see an unbelievable birth, and then near the end of the book, we'll see an unbelievable resurrection, and all in the middle of the book, we'll see unbelievable miracles and unbelievable teaching. But the, the thing that I find to be most unbelievable of all things that we will see in the Gospel of Luke is the unbelievable nature of the Son of God who would come and die for us, that our sins may be atoned for. And that we who find all of these things about God to be unbelievable may, by the grace of God, find Him to be believable. The miracle here is not the prizing birth. The miracle here is the awakening, the birthing, the renewing, the restoring of faith on the part of people of God. Now, I want to presume that everyone in this room is a Christian. All of this raises all sorts of questions for you. But the source, the answer for these questions is to not put God on trial and say, God, how can you do the unbelievable? But to put our hearts on trial and ask, why would I tell God that he can't do the unbelievable? Who do I think I am? put such missions on God. What, he can speak all of creation into existence and then he relinquishes the power to work in an unbelievable manner? Now, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the story of Jesus as revealed in the Gospel of Luke shows a great miracle that we must prepare our hearts for. And that is the miracle of God's grace coming to us. So we have a contrast here, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah questioning, doubting, and then his sweet bride advanced in years, Elizabeth. Look at verse 24 and 25 as we conclude. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. I just wonder what that conversation was like when Zechariah got home. That Actually, there wasn't a conversation. He was mute. Imagine him writing down on paper, Hey, Elizabeth, guess what I got told today? I'll leave the rest to your minds. Zechariah goes home speechless, but faithful Elizabeth, saying in verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Here she is, great trusting that the Lord has removed the reproach of her barrenness. Now you probably have times where circumstances and situations are not optimal for what you think is the work that needs to be done in your life by God. Well, what God shows us is He didn't wait for the optimal moment. He doesn't love it lined up and ready to go. He breaks in at the, times, at the time when He needs to break in. He reserves the right to shift things around, to reorient one's life, and to show them Himself. And to invite them to trust in Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. God does not look down upon us with the expert opinion of a venture capitalist on Shark Tank and say, ah, that's hopeless, pointless, I'll look elsewhere. He looks down and he believes to work, begins to work. Do you believe that he can do this? Do you believe that he has done this? Do you believe that he will continue to do this? Brothers and sisters, perhaps the greatest thing that we need to be reminded of this day is that God is faithful. Even our circumstances seem unbelievable. Let's pray together. Lord, you are our faithful God.
faithful in all things. Faithfulness is revealed to us ultimately in your Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Through Him, we come to know you. So Lord, prepare our hearts. Stir our hearts towards believing in your miracle-working, unbelievable ability to work in miraculous ways. Let us never lose faith. Let us not be people who pray, but our hearts are not behind it. Let us not be a people who sing, yet believe that the promises and the hope of the gospel we sing of are beyond our grasp. Let us see a small remnant people, an insignificant, advanced in years priest and his wife, and see that you are still in the business of the unbelievable. Let us take heart. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.